Greetings, friends. Welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell the stories from builders, architects, engineers, craftspeople, and preservationists. This podcast is brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine and traditionalbuilding.com. I'm your host, Peter Miller. History informs the future, and so do our guests. Traditional Building has recently announced this year's Who's Who, 25 industry leaders who make a difference. Our leaders are profiled in the October issue of Traditional Building and highlighted on the magazine's website. What our leaders all have in common is that they give back. They give back by volunteering their time and knowledge to their professional peers, their clients, and to emerging professionals. They have also achieved a high level of success in their careers, which sets a high standard example for the rest of us. One of our deserving who's who leaders this year is Taryn N. Williams, Senior Project Manager for the engineering firm Simpson, Gumpert, and Hager. Taryn has helped save a number of important historic structures. She is also this year's president of the nonprofit trade association the Association for Preservation Technology International. Welcome, Taryn Williams. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. You've told us that you enjoy crawling around old buildings to see how they work. I had this vision of you all dusty and cobweb, crawling like a soldier in the mud, but give me an example of what you find when you're crawling around old buildings. Sure. This is one of my favorite parts of my job. And if you ask anyone in the industry, they will probably tell you the same thing. And not to worry, we always have the right personal protective equipment on. So always safety glasses, always gloves, hard hat if we need it. So we're always safe. Um, Gosh, there are so many stories of things I've found when I've been crawling on or around or in old buildings. So one from a couple of years ago was a beautiful dome at a former courthouse in York, Pennsylvania, which is a beautiful city. And on this courthouse are three beautiful Florentine domes. And they have these bands of terracotta cladding and bands of red terracotta tile in between them. And there are clock towers on all four faces. And these domes were leaking. They had been leaking quite a bit for many years. And we were called in to help them figure out why and make repairs. So with many investigations like this, we did a little water testing. We had to look at the outside of the dome to figure out where we would test, and we had to go inside the dome. And like many domed structures, there's an outer dome, which is the structure that holds all the cladding that I just described. And then there's an inner dome, which holds the decorative plaster ceiling, which is what you see from inside. And in between that outer and inner dome, there's an interstitial space usually big enough for a person to walk around or crawl through for maintenance. And so I had to go up in that space and climb ladder after ladder after ladder after ladder to get up high enough to go behind the clock and um, see what was going on. So we we did some water testing. We, we did reproduce the reported leakage, and we found out that the intersections between the tiles and the copper flashings um, was loose, not uh, not actually waterproofed. Um, it was a big mass masonry construction. And so we were able to see by that water testing and then by selectively removing a few tiles exactly how the water got through the dome 
um, at around the clock and then how we were able to fix it. So does that is, answer your question? Is that, is a lot of the forensic work you're doing have to do with water infiltration? Um, a lot of it, yes. And when it comes to preserving historic buildings, the, the number one priority is keep the water out and that will help preserve the building. What about termites? You looking for those two <laughs> critters? We, we do find those. Um, I found them on a newly constructed building not long ago. This property was about 10 years old and about three stories up on an exterior balcony. When we opened it up, we found a bunch of termite damage. Really grossed out the young engineer who was working with me, and it was a very good lesson. Do you ever get stung in the line of duty? I haven't yet, but that is a hazard because we're always looking into spaces to see what's happening and bees um, or other things flying around are, are a hazard and we have to be very careful. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, occupational hazard. So as a civil and structural engineer who mentors others, what is your experience interacting with the craftspeople and the tradespeople on historic building job sites and where and when does engineering intersect with craft? Well, the answer to where and when is all the time. And often when we're working on historic buildings, we're having conversations in the field with the tradespeople who are installing the details that we put on the drawings. And there are many times where we will put a detail on a drawing to repair a condition uh, or to replace a material and the tradesperson who's going to install it has a question or might have a better way to accomplish the same outcome. And so the best conversations happen when we're able to talk about what's the outcome that we are intending as the designer and how might they be able to install it um, in a way that decreases the amount of material they have to remove or decreases the risk in the installation they're going to put in from a labor perspective. So there's a lot of... Um, a lot of good back and forth when we're standing there in the field together um, on a scaffold or on a swing stage looking at the building and talking about different ways to achieve the same outcome. So this happens all the time. Do you always defer to the craftsperson or is there sometimes a, really, is that how you want to do it? Um, there are times when we will change our detail based on feedback that we get from the contractor of how, um, how it is best for them to install it. And there are times when we need to explain to them, this is why we want to install it. Um, I just had a conversation a couple weeks ago and I'm turning to look out my window, but you can't see me. There's a, a project I have up on the hill at a historic high school, just a few blocks from my house where we had some very complicated waterproofing details at some um, brick masonry walls, intersecting skylights and chimneys. And there were many, many layers of waterproofing and flashing in order to accomplish the intent of the repair design. And the contractors um, did not initially install it right. And when I went up to the site, they asked me to come up to just talk to the crew about what it is we were trying to do. And they all had printouts of the drawings, which was great, but the printouts were really small. And it was too small to see the, the multiple layers. And I brought a couple of like 11 by 17 printouts that were bigger and just went through layer by layer to walk them through what it was um, we were trying to accomplish and why the layering was important and talked about you know which was critical and which was not so there's instances of, of both scenarios back and forth is it safe to assume that the craftspeople and tradespeople you normally work with are experienced in historic preservation 
Um, many times, yes. And when not, that then you've got to lean in even yeah, and be an even better have, communicator. Exactly. Then we just have more yeah. conversations or we're on the side a little bit more or we might make additional site visits to make sure that the intent is clear or that the, uh, the construction is sufficiently um, consistent with our details. Right. Well, you've worked on some very significant historic buildings, including the War Memorial Veterans Building in San Francisco, where you worked for a long time, and the Arlington National Cemetery Amphitheater, which is right across the river from Washington, D.C., where you and I are now. Do any of your projects stand out as particularly challenging and or interesting? Gosh, they all are. They're all interesting. They're all challenging in their own different way. But I'll tell you a story from the War Memorial Veterans Building, which was a great project for a lot of reasons. Um, my role was I was the project manager for the building enclosure repairs. And so that's all the repairs to the roofs, the balconies, the terracotta cladding, the steel windows, the blow grade waterproofing. But one of the most interesting aspects of this project was the skylights in the roof. This roof has a number of skylights in a steep slope metal roof. And so the roof has um, steep slope roofing with two different slopes. There's a three and 12, which is pretty shallow. And then there's a 13 and 12. And there are skylights in both of those roofs. And those skylights are mounted flush with the roof. So if you think about skylights on a contemporary building, they're mounted up on a curb, usually about eight inches high to right. just get them out of the water plane from where most of the water is going down the roof. But these skylights were originally installed flush with the roof. And this is a 1932 Beaux-Arts era building. Um, and these skylights leaked and they leaked since almost day one because we found the original engineer's logbook with this beautiful cursive handwriting that talked about the rainstorms and how many buckets they put up in the attic to catch all the leaks. So when we got up there to start working on the project, we did some water testing to assess where the leaks were coming from. They came through the skylights, they came around the perimeters. It's a really hard condition to waterproof. And so when we were thinking about how to redesign it, the skylights on the shallower part of the roof, the three and 12 slope, they were really hard to do right. We couldn't bump them out on a curb because that would look a lot different than the original construction. But we came up with a detail to raise the glass just an inch or two out of the water plane so that we could flash around it. And when we looked at what that would look like in the final construction, when we replaced the roof, the city, who was the owner of the building, did some renderings. Uh, they were also the architect of record. And they found out that if the detail was installed the way we were designing it, there was gonna be an awkward bump around the bottom of the skylight all the way around the roof. And they just did not like how that looked. So they made a proposal to the city's historic preservation planning review board to handle it a different way. And they actually gave them three options. The first option was to put in the skylights as we had designed, which was an awkward bump around the perimeter. The second option was to just fill in the skylights, roof them over like nothing had ever happened. You can't see them from the ground when you walk around. So their argument was, it's not a big deal and we don't need all that light in the attic anyway. The third option was the same as option two, um, but with a little bit of a seam in the new roofing to indicate that there had been a skylight there previously, almost like a ghost. And so which option do you think 
the Historic Preservation Planning Department proved. The awkward little bump, which you can't see from the street. No, they approved the second option, which was fill it in, roof it over, and like it never happened. And we were all shocked because we were thinking that from a preservation standpoint, they would require either putting back the skylights or something that indicated that they had been there. But the city. So, what was their reasoning? What was that? That, that sounds odd. The, the city, the architect, had made the case that the light that came in through those skylights, because there were another set of skylights lower than those, was not needed. Um, and they also argued that you can't see them from the street. And so if they're gone, it's, it's not a big deal. They, they had a bunch of programming and aesthetic-related arguments, as well as the waterproofing argument of, gosh, this is hard to waterproof. So we all could sleep better at night knowing that we didn't have to waterproof this very difficult condition. But we scratched our heads because, you know, the Historic Preservation Review Board is usually very stringent when applying, um, you know, preservation principles and philosophy. And so it was filled in, roofed over, and, you know, we moved on. Well, a practical solution, I guess. Did they take the original skylights and mount them in the museum somewhere to talk about how that was original? It's a good question about where those pieces went. I have no idea. I have no (laughs) idea. Um, there's plenty of documentation that they were there, but it's a good example of the realities of preservation as opposed to what you might learn when you're in school studying historic preservation and the, the principles that we all try to abide by. Well, I think with so many buildings being adaptive, adaptively used, there has been um, a new element of practicality mm-hmm. introduced into what is perceived anyway as sort of you know all history all the time, but you got to make these buildings function for for the future. Yeah. So your recognition as one of traditional buildings, 25 leaders who make a difference, has much to do with your volunteer work as a teacher, as a mentor, and champion for emerging professionals, and your position as president of the Association of Preservation Technology International is an example of this impact you've had on our profession. So what advice do you give emerging professionals? That's the first part of the question. And then why are you so darn generous with your time and experience? (laughs) Well, I'm full of advice, but when asked that question with no other context, I usually say three things. The first piece of advice to young professionals is find an empowered supervisor. And by empowered, I mean organizationally empowered, like this person has hierarchical authority and personally empowered, meaning this person is motivated to help you and will go out of their way to do it. Because when you are new, um, you rely on the experience and the, the doors that people who are more experienced than you will open. And so it matters that you have somebody advocating for you, somebody who knows what you want and somebody who's willing to help you get there. The second piece of advice I offer is be your own best advocate. And that means that no one else is going to know more than you what it is you want to work on and what kinds of project opportunities you're looking for, whether you'd like to travel, etc. And so tell people, because if you tell people what you're looking for, chances are they're going to help you. And when it comes down to it, no one knows better than you where your growth needs are. And so make sure that you ask for what it is you want 
nothing comes if you don't ask. That's great advice. And the third piece is join a professional organization. (laughs) And there are professional organizations around for many different purposes. There are organizations that are great for networking, meaning people who might become your client someday. And there are organizations that are great for building your technical skills and expertise, like APT, like the Structural Engineers Association, etc. And um, you can increase the size of your village and your community when you are a part of a professional organization. So you'll meet people outside your office and outside your company who are working on cool things. And when it comes time for you to perhaps change jobs um, or you know to look for other opportunities, these people are going to be there. If you need advice on something that you know no one in your office knows, um, those communities are very supportive. And it's a really rewarding thing to work together on something that benefits the industry or profession as a whole. And so that's what I've always loved about them. But it's, it's just good to get to know more people. Were you a teacher in another life? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you know, as far as like giving my time and mentoring, yes, I'm the product of two teachers. My parents were both English teachers when they started their careers. Um, I never consciously decided to be a teacher, but it's something that I've just done my entire life. I was a teaching assistant in college for several courses, including the introduction to structural engineering course for freshmen. When I took that course, I had really amazing TAs and I wanted to be just like them. So when I got to be a senior, I became a TA. Um, I always thought I would go to a university and be an adjunct professor so that I could share my engineering expertise with the students. And I've had so many great opportunities to teach at work that I haven't needed to seek that out. But my favorite professors in college were the ones who had been professional engineers first before they came back, got their PhDs and started teaching. You know, I didn't know the answer to this question before I asked it, but I had a hunch and I'm not surprised. I wanted to be an English teacher too, just like your parents. Um, so let's, Give a plug to APTI. Talk, talk a little bit about the Association of Preservation Technology and, and what is its mission. APTI is a multidisciplinary organization, and multidisciplinary means there's professionals of all different types involved. And these are professionals who do historic preservation work. So we are architects, engineers, contractors, professors, students, conservators, um, historians, etc. And APT's mission is to promote the best technology with a sound basis in good preservation philosophy to preserve historic structures in their settings and to share that knowledge among the international community. So it's about good practice and sharing good practices. So what new preservation technologies should we know about for the use in diagnosing and preserving historic buildings? There's many, and a lot of the technologies we use are not truly new, but they're relatively new in historic preservation. It's you know not the use they were originally developed for, but now they're, they're being used more and more often. So um, many of these technologies were initially developed for the military, but they came over into civilian endeavors. Things like ground penetrating radar, originally developed for the military, but we use it all the time to evaluate existing buildings non-destructively to see objects within a medium to determine whether there's reinforcing in a wall or whether there are air voids underneath the slab, for example. 
Another thing that's um, grown quite a bit in the last few years is using drones to do survey work for historic buildings. And um, they're really helpful tools for getting access to difficult spaces. And I've worked with a really good drone pilot on a couple of projects. The first one I met him on was a project where a building had fallen into disrepair and it was actually dangerous to enter the building. And so he was able to send a drone in there and to mount a 3D camera to develop um, 3D imagery and to document the structure. And another example is a project I'm about to work on involving a historic boiler stack, um, basically an octagonal cylinder made out of brick masonry at the University of Richmond that is in active use, but they're putting in a new boiler system and they want to preserve it. And getting access into this thing is very difficult. It's a confined space. It requires specialized training and it's still in use. So we can't go in there right now, but we could send a drone up the outside, probably not down the inside yet, but it's a great way to get access to something inexpensively to get a better sense of where the problems are. But I will say um, something like drones doesn't replace a hands-on survey of being right there, touching something to see if something is soft or decayed or otherwise friable. And so they are really good tools to help, but they don't uh, always replace the, the hands-on work. The hands-on, that's where Kent Diebold's ropes and climbers and touch the surface of the building comes in. Exactly Comes right. into play. Yes. So I would imagine, well, I know you give a lot of talks, seminars, speeches. I would imagine you're doing so at the upcoming APTI Seattle conference. What's your next speech and what are you going to talk about? Um, at the conference, I will be speaking briefly at all of the ceremonial events. I'm not actually giving a technical presentation and we have 75 or 80 of those lined up. But my next presentation of a technical nature is actually to a client about the more Memorial Veterans Building. And this is a client who is a, they're a large contractor and they have an in-house lunch and learn series. And they asked us to come in to give them a presentation on a historic preservation topic. So I'll be talking about that. And soon after that, I'm actually giving an internal talk at my company. We have an internal lunch and learn series as well. And I'll be talking about a project I'm working on at the Moss Federal Courthouse in Salt Lake City, which is also a historic building rehabilitation. Save your notes to give those topic presentations at our conference, the Traditional Building Conference. But I'm struck by how you're doing a lunch and learn for the contractor and his or her crew. And once again, an example of how closely you interact with the craftspeople, the tradespeople, the people who work with those materials. Do you think of yourself as a craftsperson? No, um, in, in that I'm not trained in the trades and I don't have the talent or the experience that they do. Um, I was just talking to a friend the other day who is an engineer, but has done some training for uh, local Masons unions and for the International Masonry Institute. And so he's done some of the historic masonry training. And so they, <clears throat> at one point they handed him a trowel and asked him to do some work and, you know, we're very polite, but laughed at some of his, you know, his skills based on his level of experience. And they said, don't worry, you can laugh at us when we go try to do calculations for wind loads. <laughs> <laughs> Tit for tat, so there. 
Well, I knew this would be fun and informative, Taryn. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, again, congratulations on being named as uh, one of traditional buildings leaders in the industry uh, for all the good work you do, uh, especially uh, for sharing your knowledge with others in the, in the industry. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Peter. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Our Building Tradition podcast is produced by Anne White with technical assistance from Nate Gruca. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.